I invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 4. Today I want to read verses 2 to 9 in your hearing. This morning we continue our study entitled Joyful, a study of Philippians. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 2, I'll conclude at verse 9. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Human conflict is as old as the Garden of Eden. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, introduced sin into the human race, it has dominated every generation. People of every age, every culture, every nationality, been subjected to bickering and arguing, warring, battling, and fighting. There's conflict, not only in the culture, but more troubling in the church. There's conflict not only in our streets, but more troubling, there's conflict even in the sanctuary. This past week, I came across several comical stories from the illustrative past of Alabama Baptist. As you look at the church records of various churches throughout the last 200 plus years, you'll find that there were people in years gone by that really, really got into some conflict one with the other. Church member against another church member. Church member against the leadership of the church. Leadership of the church against various church members. And all of it seems to be documented well in church records. Of course, uh, they would talk about how they would need to discipline someone or excommunicate someone in hopes of repentance. The most familiar phrase is to be churched, to be kicked out of the congregation. Of course, the things that you think might be there certainly are there. People got in trouble. They got disciplined for playing cards, dancing at the music hall profanity in the streets. Of course, there were some that got disciplined and churched excommunicated because of the distilling, the selling, and the drinking of spiritous liquors. 
except, of course, for medicinal purposes. There were others that got disciplined with some conflict because of holding hands at the church picnic. I mean, let's, let's be honest. If they hold hands at the church picnic, what's going to happen after the church picnic? There were some that got disciplined because they missed the church business meeting. Do you all even know we still have church business meetings? There were some people that got disciplined because of the conflict that arose because some church members missed two Sundays in a row. Since COVID, I've been hoping for people to show up for two Sundays in a row. Some of the more ancient records uh, give testimony of, of one man being disciplined because of the conflict that arose because he stole half a hog that did not belong to him. You can't steal another man's hog, and you can't steal half of his hog either. But the one that really captured my attention was from Hurricane Baptist Church, December 17, uh, 1819, where it spoke of two quarreling women. They got into a fist fight. They were duking it out. And the record said, and I quote, there was smiting with fist of wickedness, end of quote. All this conflict throughout our past as Alabama Baptist. You know, years have passed, but not a whole lot has changed. The details are different, but people in the church, they still get crossweighed, don't they? Some people have chaos and conflict because of a difference of opinion regarding the color of the carpet. Instruments that are used in the worship service, instruments that are not used in the worship service. Songs that are sung, other songs that are omitted. How the offering is collected or dispersed or allocated. How or who is on a particular committee. Or even you could have some teenagers who are best of friends and yet they somehow get into conflict and it creates a multi-generational ripple. Conflict chaos. My question this morning is, how do we handle conflict in the faith family? How are we supposed to deal appropriately and biblically with conflict? I can tell you what we typically do. Uh, typically, we take sides. We promise public silence and we promote private gossip. Typically, that's what we do. Typically, we take sides. Usually, we take the side of the person that gets to us first. After all, their story is very convincing. And we take their side. But need I remind you that there's always at least two sides to every story. And we would do well to intentionally think the best of someone else instead of the worst in someone else. It is so easy, so tempting to think the worst of somebody else, but we ought to think the best of someone else. After we take sides, then we, we give promised public statements of silence. Well, it's really none of my business. I'm not going to get involved. 
I'm going to pray for them. God bless them. Love their heart. I'm going to do my best just to stand back and stay out of the way because, you know, far be it from me to get into the mess. It's their problem, not mine. Praise the Lord. But need I remind you that as a church, we are called, for it is our business, to maintain and promote the unity of the believers even as the adversary fires his darts at the church. Once we have taken sides and promised public silence on the matter, then we promote private gossip. Did you hear what she said? Did you hear what he did? Well, is it true? I don't know, but a story like that got to be true. And so we repeat it, and we say it, and then we say it, and then we repeat it. And maybe it would just be a whole lot better if whenever there was conflict, we talked to the person and not about the person. How do we handle biblical conflict? Paul gives us a case study of real life conflict in the Philippian church. Beginning in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he describes in some detail a skirmish that had erupted between two ladies, one Euodia, the other Syntyche. I do not visualize these ladies as cantankerous old women who are mad at the world and frustrated at everybody else, been baptized in vinegar, have a permanent frown etched on their face, disliked by everybody, including their children, who never call them even on Mother's Day. No, I don't think that's the description of Euodia and Syntyche. These two ladies are Christians. You know that because Paul says that their names are written in the book of life and they contended for the faith by my side. I would go one step further. Not only are these ladies believers in Jesus Christ, but I also think they're probably leaders in the Philippian church. Whatever their disagreement was, I'll agree with you, it probably was petty, but it wasn't private. It had gotten out, and now the line had been drawn. It was very divisive within the church. People were taking sides. I really support Euodia. Well, I think that Syntyche is more right than wrong. And there was great division in the church, causing friction and chaos. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul addresses these ladies. He does it as directly as he possibly could in that day. Keep in mind, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's 800 miles separated from Philippi. So he can't talk to them face to face, but he does the next best thing. He addresses them through the sacred script. He says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. I want you to notice he's very even-handed in this conflict. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't add to the gossip. We don't know precisely what's going on. Because he doesn't give us any more of the details. He doesn't need to give us any more of the details. Probably the people in the church were very well versed on the situation. And Paul just pleads with them. He pleads with them equally. I plead with you, Odie, and I plead with Syntyche. Agree with each other in the Lord. Now, if we do some investigative study, we have to reach this conclusion as well. Whatever the scenario was, it is not a case where one lady had authority over the other lady. 
If that was the situation, then the solution would be really quite simple. Because the New Testament is quite clear that uh, when someone of authority makes a decision or makes a statement, then those that are under that authority need to willfully submit. And so you, you see that all consistently throughout the scripture. So this is not a case where one lady has some type of authority over the other lady. It's also not a case where one lady is clearly in the right and the other one is blatantly sinful. Because if that were the case, it'd be a simple solution as well. Because Paul, uh, neither you nor I nor Paul, would ever routinely side with sin. So it's not a case where one is clearly right and the other is clearly sinful. It's not a case where one is over the other in some type of leadership authority. No, this is a case of, of great gray matter. And much of life is lived in the, in the gray instead of the black and the white. So Paul just pleads equally with them. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. He goes beyond that by calling on the leadership of the church to help resolve this. He says, first and foremost, I plead for the sake of the gospel, for your witness, agree with each other in the Lord. But seeing that you can't come together, then he also calls on you, loyal yoke fellow. Who is that? Who is the loyal yoke fellow? Most believe it's Epaphroditus, the one who's carrying this letter. He carried the resources to Paul in prison. And then when Paul writes the letter, he carries the letter back some 800 miles from Rome to Philippi. He is probably the loyal yoke fellow. Paul also calls on Clement. Who is that? I have no clue. I don't know who he is. I'm assuming he's another leader in the church. Paul calls on the others, uh, co-laborers, those other servants in the church to also come alongside and help remedy this situation. For the sake of the gospel, there doesn't need to be conflict in the church. For the sake of Christ, there ought to be resolution. And for the wisdom that can come from the collective leadership of the body of Christ, there ought to be a, a sensible uh, resolution to the conflict. This is how Paul deals with Euodia and Syntyche. He gives us a case study of conflict. The very next word of our passage is a command to rejoice. It sounds odd. It sounds out of place. It sounds disjointed. I mean, why is Paul just moving on to something joyful and happy? Is he sweeping this under the carpet? And the answer is no. What I think he's doing is he's saying, let me give you this case study of conflict. And then for the following verses, let me show you what it is to have a formula of peace. Not just for Euodia and Syntyche, but for every person in the body of Christ. This is a formula for peace. So what's the formula for peace? What's he going to talk about? Well, he's going to talk about right praying. And then he's going to talk about right thinking. And ultimately he's going to talk about right standing. And if you have right praying and right thinking and right standing, then you'll have peace with God, peace with yourself, and peace with fellow man. So I think these are the instructions that flow out of the case study of Euodia and Syntyche. So he begins by saying, first and foremost, the formula for peace involves right praying. So rejoice. This is a command to the church, and he's telling them, don't let their dispute deflate your passion for Christ. I'm not ignoring it. 
It's legitimate. It's right there. We're going to come alongside and help them. But this is not going to suck the wind out of our sails as a congregation. Paul says, I want you to rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all. Gentleness in the way you speak, gentleness in the words you use, gentleness in what you say and how you say it, gentleness in your actions. And why are you and I to be gentle? Because the Lord is near. How near is the Lord? Scripture says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That's pretty near. Scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as pretty near. And, of course, we know that his second coming is closer now than it's ever been. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious, Paul writes, in anything. The word anxious means tied up in knots. It means uh, to be wound up in knots or pulled in different directions. Do you know what that feels like? Do you know what it feels like to be bound up in knots? Do you know what it feels like to be pulled in different directions? To feel as if your life is being pulled apart at the seams? And Paul says, do not be anxious. Do not be pulled apart by anything. You know what the word anything means? The word anything means anything. That's what it means. Don't be anxious. Don't be bound up. Don't be pulled apart by anything. Don't let anything bind you up. Don't let the marriage thing. Don't let the money thing. Don't let the children thing. Don't let the parenting thing. Don't let the infertility thing. Don't let the cancer thing. Don't let the job thing. Don't let the unemployment thing. Don't let the political thing. Don't let the family thing. Don't let the conflict Don't let anything cause you to be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Friends, there is a great promise. When you pray, you receive the peace of God. Let me say that again. When you pray, you receive the peace of God. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Then what happens? And the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, it will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. When you pray, God promises you his peace. If you don't have his peace, it just might be because you have not prayed. If you're living life bound up, being pulled apart, if you're living life being tied up in knots, it could be that it's because you have not prayed. For when you pray, you receive the peace of God. When you forfeit prayer, you forfeit the peace of God. You say, Pastor, what does that peace look like? What does it feel like? You know, it's really hard for me to describe it because it goes beyond all human recognition and human understanding. I mean, it's it's hard for me to articulate and to put it into words, but if you're a child of God and if you know what it is to pray about something and then receive that peace as as if the load has been lifted off your shoulders, as if the elephant has been taken away from your chest, as if somehow everything that kept you up at night now prompts you to be able to sleep well all night through. There's something about the peace of God which passes all understanding. That if you know what that is, 
you know that it's a benefit of prayer. You pray and God gives you peace and his peace surpasses all human understanding. And he promises to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard is a specific term. Remember that Paul is under house arrest. He is chained to a Roman guard. That soldier is posted there at his house, for Paul is under house arrest. He's not in prison. He's under house arrest. He is incarcerated. He's there 24-7, a Roman soldier from Caesar is chained to him. They take about six-hour shifts, and then somebody else comes in, and they, they switch out. But Paul is always chained to a soldier, to a guard. What's the purpose of that guard? I guess you could say it's twofold. Yes, there is something to it that that guard is there to keep Paul from escaping. But that's not the primary reason. If they really thought that Paul was a flight risk, they would have put him in a dungeon. They would have put him in a jail cell. But he's under house arrest. So they don't think that Paul is a flight risk. So the reason the soldier is posted there is to make sure that nothing on the outside can come in and hurt and harm Paul because he has to have his day in court. The soldier is there. He is posted there. He is guarding the very life of Paul just to make sure that none of those visitors that come in, none of the people that come in, that no one comes in to hurt or to harm the apostle. When Paul sees this, he says, that's what the peace of God does in your life. It guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That Roman soldier posted to Paul he would have walked back and forth and back and forth at the entrance of that house as if to say, nothing harmful is going to get through, not on my watch. Nothing hurtful, nothing devastating, nothing detrimental is going to get through, not on my watch. And Paul says in the very same way that the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, is posted to guard the door of your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Where does most of your conflict come from? Where does most of the chaos of your life originate? You may want to say, it's the other person's fault. Well, maybe it is. But can we just remove the mask just for a second this morning? Most of your personal conflict originates in your thoughts, and in your feelings. Where is the peace of God guarding the child of God? At the door of his heart and his mind. The heart is the seat of feelings. The mind is the seat of intellect and thoughts. So Paul says it's the peace of God which guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's as if the peace of God walking back and forth, back and forth against the front door of your heart and your mind saying to anything that comes at you that could be hurtful and harmful from the adversary, the peace of God says you're not getting through, not here, not now, not on my watch. Because nothing's going to get through that's going to harm the child of God. So no hurtful thought, 
no hurtful feeling, no stinking thinking, and no joy kill feeling will get through on my watch of the peace of God. It's almost as if Paul personifies the peace of God. It's not just a thing, it's almost a person. It's a soldier. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? That Christ is the one who guards us in Christ Jesus, he says. So if, if you're going to have peace, peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with fellow man, part of that formula has to include right praying. So can I ask you, Christian, how's your prayer life? Honestly, how is your prayer life? How much attention, how much time, how much effort do you put into your prayer life? Is it something that you do every hour of the day? Is it something that you do at least intentionally every day? Is it something that you give a few moments to, uh, you know, every couple of days? Do you only pray when we pray here at the church? What's your prayer life like? Are you bound up in knots? Do you feel as if life is pulling you in different directions? If you do, could it be that you don't pray as you should? Because Paul is very clear. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. With prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And how's God going to respond? The peace of God, which passes all human understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. If you're going to have peace, you've got to have right prayer. Secondly, the formula for peace also includes right thinking. Have you ever taken an inventory of your thoughts? Have you ever gotten to a mental space, a mental place, and you think to yourself, how did I get here? And then you kind of retrace your thought steps and say, how, how did I get here? Where did I turn, left or right? Y'all are looking at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe I'm the only person who does this. But sometimes I get in a spot where I think to myself, where did that thought come from? How did I get there? And I've got to kind of back up a little bit. I've kind of uh, unwind the tangled web of my thoughts. Have you ever taken an inventory of your thoughts? Your mind is so awesome that it is able to hold and to house numerous thoughts in a moment. You're bombarded by thoughts. Every second of every minute, every minute of every hour, every hour of every day, constantly you have thoughts. So that Paul says to the church, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely or admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. I take that to mean that what Paul is telling the church is that you have to direct your thoughts and not let your thoughts direct you. You've got to direct your thoughts and not let your thoughts direct you. You've got to direct your thoughts and not let your thoughts direct you. You have the power, you have the capacity to tell your mind what to think. So whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things and don't think on things that are opposite of that. Now this is very consistent. 
throughout the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, set your mind on things above. I take that to mean it's an intentional effort. I've got to set my mind on things above. I've got to do that on a repetitive, regular, intentional, strategic basis. Because if I don't set my mind on things above, guess what will happen? My mind will devolve into the things below. So I've got to set my mind on things above. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, take captive every thought, subject it to Christ. That phrase, take captive, is an aggressive analogy. It means to arrest. It's the imagery of a, of a soldier arresting a criminal. In our day, it's a police officer who apprehends an unruly criminal who's resisting arrest. Now, I know that police officers have boundaries of what they can do or can't do, but they do have a lot of freedom because it's their job to apprehend the criminal who is resisting arrest. And there are times where it's appropriate for that police officer to wrestle the perpetrator to the ground, cuff them and stuff them, place them into the squad car, take them down to the precinct to await their appearance before the judge. And Paul says that's exactly what you do with your thoughts. You take captive every thought and you subject it to Christ. So there are times that you have stinking thinking, right? There are times when, when you have thoughts that are ungodly. What do you do with them? You arrest them. You cuff them and stuff them. You wrestle them to the ground. You throw them in the sanctified squad car. You take them down to the priestly precinct. And you present them before King Jesus, and he will tell you what is in bounds and out of bounds. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to direct your thoughts. Do not be directed by your thoughts. Do you realize that it is very possible and, uh, dare I say, even mandatory that the child of God you, you must train your mind to have a God thought first thing in the morning. When the alarm clock rudely jolts you from your slumber, and once you come to your senses, you've got to train your mind to think on God first. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, simply just to say, God, this is your day. Good morning, Lord. Thanks for waking me up. God, I need you. God, I love you. It's just a simple statement. Just something that you train your mind to do. It may take you a few days, some even several weeks. But eventually, as soon as the alarm clock goes off, your mind will immediately trigger towards a God thought. And throughout the day, when you're bombarded by the culture, when you're bombarded by the world, you've got to train your mind to think not on the culture, but on Christ. And at the end of the day, when you're having those last thoughts before you go to sleep, you lay your head down on your pillow, and one of those last thoughts, you just say, Lord, thank you for today. I'll see you next time.
And if you're a child of God, the next time will be when you wake up in heaven or when you wake up tomorrow morning. But either way, you're going to see him soon. I never know when my last thought's going to be. I'm not that smart. So I just try towards the end of my day as I am about to go off to sleep. I try. I try to have a God thought. Now, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Pastor, you're a pastor. Of course you're supposed to think this way. You are just describing yourself, and you're pretty much holier than thou. No, let me, let me clarify that. It's not that I'm holier than thou. In fact, I am not holier than thou. And that's why I need to think on Jesus. It's not I think on Jesus because I'm holier than thou. No, I'm not holier than thou. And I'm very self-aware that I'm not holier than thou. And because I'm not holier than thou, I've got to think on Jesus. Just like a computer is, is, is wired to a default system. So the child of God is wired to a default system. And the child of God has a default system that is Jesus. We ought to think on Jesus. we got to train ourselves to have Jesus' thoughts instead of all the junk that we put into our mind and permit to take up residence in our mind and then seep down into our heart and then filter out in our actions. You know, in today's culture, uh, mental health is a really popular, prevalent concept. It seems that everybody's talking about mental health, right? Children, athletes, businessmen, businesswomen. It seems that many people everywhere are talking about mental health. And I'll stand before you and I'll tell you, mental health is a real thing. It's legitimate. It's real. Do you know how we are to have mental health? Have a healthy mental space and place? Think on Jesus. You say, preacher, that's not going to work for everybody. You're right. It'll only work for Christians. You say, preacher, it's not just won't work for everybody. It's not going to work for every Christian. You don't know everything that I've been through, friend. Don't you dare limit my Jesus. You want mental health? Think on Christ. You want mental health? Think on Jesus. You know what our culture needs more than anything else? They need a healthy dose of Philippians. That's what they need. Because if you think about the study of Philippians, it's all been about mindset. It's all been about our mentality. In Philippians chapter 1, it's the singular mind. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Philippians chapter 2, it's all about the submissive mind. For have the same mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took on the very form of a servant. He became humbled as a man. He became humbled to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 3, 
Paul says that we are to have the spiritual mind. For I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his suffering, to be like him in his death, as to somehow attain to the power of the resurrection. And here in Philippians chapter 4, the apostle Paul just simply says, we have the secure mind in Christ because the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Friend, what we need for mental health, we simply need to think on Jesus. We need a healthy dose of places like Philippians. Choose any chapter, one, two, three, or four, and you're going to hear something about the Christian mind. If you're going to have peace with God, the formula for peace, it does include right praying and right thinking. But also it includes right standing. If we are going to have the peace of God, we've got to know the God of peace. I mean, if we're really going to have the peace of God, we've got to know the God of peace. It is only God who gives us this peace that passes all understanding. And God gives us peace so we can be at peace with him, ourselves, and one another. So then Paul just says, look to my example. If, If you've learned anything, if you've received anything, If you've seen anything, if you've heard anything good from me, put it into practice. People say, Paul is being so arrogant, so bombastic, so so impulsive. He's just being, he's being so self-centered to say, hey, just look to me, just be like me. No, no. Paul understands. As the leader of the congregation, I've got to walk well in front of the people. I've got to do my best to show them Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I I want to walk well in front of you. So if you've learned anything from me, if you've seen anything in my life that's good and beneficial, if you have received anything of benefit, then put it into practice. Elsewhere, Paul says, you follow me as I follow Christ. Paul would say, no leader is perfect. But every God leader wants to walk well in front of the people He's called to care for and to shepherd. So the last line, Paul just simply says, and the God of peace will be with you. If the God of peace is with you, then friend, you are in right standing with God Almighty. How do you know if you're in right standing with God? How do you know? If you're in right standing with the Lord. I want to tell you a story that I heard from Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg said, if if we don't preach the cross to ourselves every day, then eventually we will begin to think that our salvation is somehow earned by our efforts. So every day we've got to preach to ourselves the gospel. Every day we've got to remind ourselves of the cross of Jesus Christ. He said, what is the basis of your salvation? If your answer, or my answer, starts with first person singular, because I Because I believe, because I have faith, because I was baptized. 
you've got it wrong. Your answer and my answer has to start with third person singular, because he. Because he died on the cross. Because he saved me. Because he paid a sin debt. It's not first person singular. It's third person singular. It's not because I. It is because he. Then he went on to say, think about the criminal on the cross. He said, when I get to heaven, I want to catch up with that guy. And I want to say to him, you made it. You made it. It's hard to believe, but you actually made it. The criminal on the cross, he'd never been to church. He had never gone on a mission trip. He knew nothing about church membership. He had never been baptized. One minute, he's cussing out Jesus with his buddy. The next minute, he's walking streets of gold. Alistair Beck says, I want to go up to him and I want to say, hey, you made it. How did you do it? And his response would be something like this. When I got to the pearly gates, the angel that was attending the gate looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And he responded, I don't know. He said, no, no, what do you mean you don't know? And the fellow says, I really mean, I don't know. I don't know how I'm here. And the angel said, but how? What? Wait a minute, let me go get my supervisor. So he goes and he gets the supervising angel. And the angel who's supervising all the other angels comes and he says, hey, look, this guy just showed up and he doesn't know why he's here. He know how he got here. And so we can't let anybody in who's not supposed to be in. So we've got to do something about this. And the supervising angel calms down the other angel and says, now, excuse me, sir, we are so glad that you're here. We're delighted by your presence. But we do have to make sure that you're supposed to be here. So let's just go over a few questions. Let me just fill out this form. It's a standard form. Everybody has to do it. So let's just go through these questions. For starters, are you clear? Are you clear about justification by faith alone? And the guy says, I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, okay, okay. All right. Well, second question is, do you have an understanding of imputed righteousness? Everybody in here has an understanding of imputed righteousness. Do you know what it is to receive imputed righteousness? And the guy says, I haven't a clue. I don't know what you're saying. He says, okay, all right, all right. Let's just get down to the very basic brass tacks, the doctrine of the scripture. Do you believe that the scripture is the infallible, inerrant word of God without any mixture of error? And the guy says, I have no idea the words that you're talking right now. I've never heard of those words. And now the supervising angel's getting a little frustrated. He's getting a little, uh, a little aggravated. And he asks this question to that thief on the cross. He looks at him and he says, by what basis are you here? And the man just looks at him and says, I am here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. I wish God would give me a church today. Did you hear what I just said? The thief on the cross would stand there and he'll answer the question, by what basis are you here? I am here simply because, only because, solely because the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's only because of him that I have right standing. It's only because of him that I have interest into God's kingdom. It's only because of him that I'm declared innocent. I wish there was somebody who get happy in the house. I mean, I wish somebody would understand. It's because of the man on the middle cross that we're able to come. Friends, that 
is right standing. That is peace with God. The only way that you can be at peace with God is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that man on the middle cross said I could come. There's chaos that's all around us. There's conflict in the culture and sadly, even in the church. We have people battling, fighting, fussing and cussing, not only in the streets, but also in the sanctuary of God. And friend, what Paul gives us is a case study of conflict with Euodia and Syntyche. And then he gives us a formula for peace. Peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with fellow man. That formula does include right praying and right thinking and right standing. And by the way, you do know that those are given in ascending order. Don't for a second believe that as long as I have right praying and right thinking, then I will automatically have right standing. No, that's backwards. It is because of what Christ did for you on the cross that you have right standing before God and what results from that right standing is right thinking and right praying. So when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The formula for peace, it includes right praying and right thinking and right standing. Let me say it another way. The only formula for peace that works is because the man on the middle cross said you could come. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this moment of invitation. There may be some listening to my voice and they acknowledge that they are not in right standing with you because of Jesus. They think they're in right standing because of their efforts. So today I pray that you will seek and save them that they will come forward and say, I need this Jesus, the man on the middle cross in my life. And Father, maybe there's somebody here that's in conflict with somebody else. And maybe today they just need to come and, and pray, uh, pray for themselves because they're all bound up in knots, pulled in different directions. Father, may your altar be full. May people come to faith in Christ. May people come and join this church. May you call people out to serve full-time Christian service. Lord, you have your way and help us to respond in obedience. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.